0: It's a privilege to be uh, back here again with you guys tonight, uh, studying God's Word together. We are studying 1 John, as you know, no surprises there, so you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2, continuing on in our exposition of John's first letter. Now, I'm sure, as you remember, uh, this first letter is all about assurance. John's writing to this church. To bolster their assurance. He writes so that these believers will be able to see through the fog of the false teaching that surrounds them, of the deceptions that are all about, and and hear the voice of their shepherd. And John wants us as the church to have clarity. He wants us to know that we have eternal life, to know that we have real fellowship with God, like we've seen over the last few weeks. And he desperately wants us because he knows that our joy depends on it, our fruitfulness in life depends on uh, the quality of our assurance with the Father. And if you remember back to last week, the letter is divided into two parts. Do you remember that? With the hinge in the middle. The first part is like an extended introduction. It starts in verse 1 and it goes all the way through chapter 2, verse 11. And John's central premise in, in that first part of the letter is his message, as he calls it, is that God is light. In verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, God is light. And he builds everything kind of on that premise that they need to know this, God is the God of truth, that's what it means, he's, he's light, he's the God of truth and he's the God of transformation. The light shines in the darkness and it transforms what it touches. Anyone who knows this God of light then, anyone who really has fellowship with the God of light, they will begin to reflect His nature. They themselves will walk, they will live according to His light, not perfectly, but they'll begin to reflect it. They'll live in light of his, His illumination, of the truth. They'll be continually convicted of sin, John says, which means they'll confess it freely doesn't mean they're free of sin, but they're convicted. They confess it. They own it. They don't hide their sin. Those who have fellowship with God, their lives will be marked by a grateful obedience to Christ, and they'll learn to demonstrate the love that they've been shown by Him. And anyone who claims to know God, but their lives are marked by consistent rebellion against Him. Their lives are marked by covering up of their sin. These people, John would say, don't really know God, even though they claim to. Even if they're passionate about their relationship with God, they are liars, John says. And that was the first part of the letter. He wants us to sort of test these, these claims, and especially his, his first century audience, because there were a lot of false teachers claiming that they had fellowship with God, and they were denying the truth. And that was the first, the way he opens this letter but then it was as though, we looked at this last week, it was as though John slows down a bit to encourage the church. It's like he realizes that, that many sensitive believers in this congregation uh, may be rattled by the tests he just gave, right? We might be tempted to respond wrongly to seeing our sin, sin in our lives. We say, okay, you've got to be obedient to Christ. Well, I see all these areas I'm not obedient. Does that mean I'm not a believer? What does John think of me, this early church might have thought, to the faithful? So he knows that his church, early on, was, was tempted to respond wrongly to maybe those tests, to seeing sin in their lives. And they were, they were tempted to, to fall headlong into doubt and discouragement. And so John, he slows down, and kind of the hinge point of this letter, he slows down to encourage us. He wants us to remember all that God has done for us in Christ. We saw that last week. He wants us to be assured that our sins are completely forgiven in Him, if we've believed in Him. He he wants us to be assured that uh, what Christ really has done for us is real. He wants us to realize that we really do know Christ, that He's the true Christ. And He wants us to realize that we have already overcome the evil one. That's how He ends that section in verse 14. We have already overcome the evil one because of what Jesus has done. And we saw that John repeats himself, slows down, repeats himself to drive the point home about our identity in Christ and what he's obtained. And that was the hinge point of the letter, and it kind of propels us into the second half of John's letter. It transitions us into his instructions. Remember, we don't see any commands in this letter before this point, so they all flow after this. The second part of this letter contains all of John's imperatives for this church, what he wants us to avoid, what he wants us to pursue. And it's important to to know that. Why is that? Well, it flows from commands and obedience flow from who we are in Christ. It flows out of that. It flows out of a context of hope, in other words. We don't obey to earn God's favor. We obey because we have his favor. His last words ringing on our ears are words of hope in verse 13, or excuse me, verse 14, that we have overcome the evil one, he says. And that, too, is very important to know. And why is that? Well, because, John's going to show us, we are very much still in enemy territory. We're still in enemy territory. We have already overcome him in Christ, but the world we live in, the world that surrounds us, is still under the sway of the enemy of our souls. Later in this letter, John's going to say just this this very thing in in chapter 5, verse 19. Listen to what he says there. He says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies still, right now, lies in the power of the evil one. And not only is the world under its sway, but as believers, we're still tempted with his enticements. So the world all around us is under his power, and within us still is are these lurking desires that are still enticed by our surroundings. The old Adam, Paul would call it. We're still in danger of being duped by the world's lies. If our minds are not renewed, we can easily slip into believing the propaganda of the world. So, it's not rocket science, just think about it. Every time we sin, this reveals that we are deceived. Think about that. Every time we sin, it reveals that deception has already taken place. We're deceived. We think sin is good for us, and it's not. We think sin's not going to have consequences, and it will. We reveal that we have been duped by the world and its enticements. So tonight, John is going to help us tremendously. He's going to help us see that our fight is a fight of loyalties, fundamentally. It's a fight of loyalty. To whom will we be devoted? Or in his word, who will we love? In chapter 2, verse 15, he gives us his first clear instruction. He's going to tell us very plainly not to be allured by the world or not to love it. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just give us a command. He also tells us why we shouldn't love the world. He impacts the reasons that we shouldn't love the world. And these reasons then kind of function as motivations for us to love the Father, to get after living in loyal obedience to his desires, And not the world's. So as we jump in this tonight, let's just look at this passage, read it together. Chapter two, verse fifteen. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, in our text, John gives us his first command of the letter. He he doesn't want us to love the world, he says. Then he tells us why. Or, just for the purpose of tonight, he gives us the command. We're going to look at that. And then he gives us, the motivation, provides motivation to obey the command. So, command, motivation. Those are going to be our, our, our two points tonight in our outline. So, let's start with understanding the command. Of, Do not love the world, verse 15. Don't love the world, he says, nor the things in the world. Now, if you've been around the church any length of time, just curious, how many of you have heard sermons on this passage? Okay, a lot of you? Well, if you've been around, you've, you've probably heard this passage appealed to in a lot of different ways, right? So what does this mean? What is John getting at when he says, don't love the world? Well, sadly, many have made this passage to say something very different, I think, than what John intended it to say. So as we work through this command, I just want to ask some questions and try to answer those for us tonight. Let's look at this first one. What's he not saying in this command? What is John not saying? Or how have, how have people misunderstood this command in the past and in the present? Well, we know that John is not commanding some form of asceticism. Okay, He's not commanding some form of asceticism. Like, what is that? What is asceticism? Well, it, it's this idea that, that you can't enjoy or appreciate creation. You kind of have to punish yourself, be away from it, Creation is bad. Material world is bad. Some people have taken this command to mean that we shouldn't have any earthly enjoyments, that the created world, like we just said, is bad. The non physical is good. And that's not really biblical, that's more Platonic. But they say we should try to live as minimally as possible, and, and if we do enjoy anything, we should probably feel guilty about it afterwards. Right? So, this sort of ascetic lifestyle. Don't love the world. Well, John's definitely not saying that. That goes against what the scriptures say. Obviously, the world was created by God himself. It was declared to be good by God. We've seen that in our Sunday school study. Humans were created to take dominion of this world, God's good earth. And even after the fall, so many of the psalms and other places in scripture just really extol creation. and Talking about its, its value, its worth before the lord and what it's intended to do in our hearts it's like psalm 19 for example it says the heavens declare the glory of god heavens are the material universe they're declaring his glory so that's a very positive statement about the material world and creation itself provides tremendous beauty stimulus to worship the true god even unbelievers it convinces unbelievers of his power his invisible attributes right and 1 Timothy 6 says it's full of God's gifts to his people. And again, in 1 Timothy 4, says that those gifts are to be received with joy and thanksgiving. So John is not saying that we should seek to cut ourselves off from the creation in a sort of ascetic way. And he's, not, he's also not saying that we should isolate from the world, um, or isolate from unbelievers in particular. He's not commanding some form of isolationism, saying we shouldn't love unbelievers, So, some people have taken this, don't love the world, meaning the unbelievers, don't love unbelievers. Well, that's not what he means when he tells us not to love the world. In fact, the only other time in John's writings that the verb love and the object world is used. Any guesses? In John 3.16, where God so loved the world. That's a jarring statement when we compare it to what we read here. Do not love the world, right? So he's not saying we should not love unbelievers. God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that he gave his only son. He sacrificed for the needs of sinful humanity. Obviously, in other places of Scripture, we're told to love our enemies, to pray for them, do good to them, Luke 6. And we're to do this as we boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ, as we confront their sin against the Lord. We love them, do good to them, pray for them, bless our enemies. So this is not some form of isolationism. And I also don't think it's, it's an externalism. He's not commanding some form of externalism only. Maybe we could modify it like that. So what do I mean? Well, some people, some Christians in the past have defined a worldliness wholly in terms of externals. You probably know what I'm talking about. Outward behaviors only. Choices only. So you think of the the typical like, kind of whipping boy here, like the drinking, smoking, going to movies, like in the past, like old fundamentalism. Clothing choices, you know, fill in the blank. But even today, we we still may be tempted to think of worldliness as kind of merely in in the externals, right? What we do or don't do. And as we're going to see, worldliness certainly is expressed. This love of the world is expressed in sinful actions. But that's actually not what John's going to address in this passage. It can't be reduced to actions alone. John is going to get to the heart of the issue. It is far deeper than just merely sinful activity. It has to do with what we desire, what we want, what we love. So, all these, I think, are are misunderstandings of what John is saying, and in particular, of what John means by world. Okay? Does it make sense? So, in the first one, world doesn't mean created world. World doesn't mean unbelievers. World doesn't mean just like external actions. So, what does he mean? That's our next question. What does John mean by the world when he uses that term? Well, in this context, when John talks about the world, he has in mind the evil world system, the evil world system, the world that stands in opposition to God. Down in verse 17, if you kind of look down, down there, you'll see John will also describe the world as having desires, desires that stand in opposition to God's righteous desires or his will. That's the word that's used there. It's translated will, but it's just another word for desire. So you see, verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. Do you see that? But whoever does the will of God, the desire of God, abides forever. So the will of the world, in other words, is in opposition to the will of God, what God wants. So we know, by that kind of contrast, that that when John's talking about the world here in this paragraph, he means the, the evil world system, the world that stands in opposition to God and all of its sin. And then if we were just to kind of quickly survey 1 John, we would see that this, you know, confirms this. So look down in chapter 3, verse 1. John says the world, middle of verse 1, this is the reason why the world did not know us, it did not know him. John says the world won't recognize that we are God's children because it didn't recognize Christ. There in verse 1, chapter 3. In other words... The world, this world that he's talking about, what do we learn about it? It's blind to the true reality about Christ and about us. Does it make sense? So the world is blind to the true reality about Jesus and about us. And not only is the world blind to us, but it's convicted by our righteous living. It's convicted by our love, and it will hate us as a result. Look in verse 13. He says, same chapter, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So that's in this context of talking about how Cain murdered Abel because Cain's deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So don't be surprised then that the world, the seed of the serpent, offspring of Cain, so to speak, hate you. They want to murder you. So this world that John's talking about, that we're not to love, is a world that hates us. It's a world that's convicted by our righteousness and love. Then in chapter 4, John tells us that this world is full of false prophets and antichrists. All right? Not not a positive assessment. It's full of false prophets and antichrists. Chapter 4, he says, verse 1, Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For, listen, many false prophets... A few? No. Many false prophets have gone out, where? Into the world. So they've gone out into the world. And then down again, he says the same, similar thing of, of the spirit of Antichrist in the middle of verse 3. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in, where? The world already. So this spirit that is against Christ, Antichrist, is in the world. This world that we're to not love. And in fact, John says that these prophets and false Christ or antichrist, they are from the world, down in verse 5, from the world. And then he says, therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Verse 5. So what does he mean there? In other words, the false prophets, they originate from this evil world. So it means they're from the world. They speak in accordance with the evil world's values, right? They speak in accordance with the values. It was it me, speak from the world. They speak in accordance with its values. And the evil world then claps in approval. The world listens to them, John says. They clap in their approval of these false prophets and antichrist. And then, sort of in a, in a climactic way, in chapter 5, John tells us why, why this happens. Because the whole world, he says in verse 19, the whole world lies under the influence and power of Satan. He says in verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This means that the movers and the shakers of the world, the cultural Systems and ideologies of the world, all of its followers, everyone outside of Christ are all under his influence. It's like there's no neutral ground, You're either under the influence of Satan or under the kingship of Christ. So, why was I going why was I dragging you guys through all that? Step back. It's this world, this evil world. The world that is under the influence of Satan, that follows his will, that walks in accordance to Satan's ways, that is set in direct opposition to God, it's that world that John tells us not to love. Make sense? But notice something else about our verse. That's not all John tells us not to love. He goes on, he goes kind of one step further a little more specific, and tells us not to love, what else? The things in the world. Right? You see that? Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, he says. Well, what is he talking about now? Is something different? Well, he clarifies himself down in verse 16. Notice what he says there. He says, for all that is in the world, that's the same phrase, all that is in the world, those things of the world, and then he, he states what they are. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So the things of the world, we might be tempted to think of like tangible things, he says, are fundamentally desires, right? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and what he says, the pride of the arrogance of life. Now that's very interesting. Okay. very interesting. So let's unpack each of these real quick and I think you'll see why I think this is this is interesting. All right? So the first thing that is that is in the world, oh, there we go. First thing that's in the world, he says are the desires of the flesh. So what does he mean by that? Well, I'll give you kind of a another definition or another kind of extended statement on what I think this means. I think he's referring to sinful, the sinful cravings of uh, fallen human nature, or maybe we could say the sinful cravings that come from a fallen human nature. The desires of the flesh, or the lusts of the flesh. These are desires that arise from our sinful condition. Now we have to be careful with this word flesh, with John, because it, he does, it doesn't, it's, not, it's not always negative, okay? It's not always a negative thing, because Jesus came into flesh, it says. But he wasn't sinful. But in other places, John will take this word flesh, and he'll, he'll kind of put it in uh, opposition to the spirit. He'll say things like, things, that those that are born of flesh are flesh, and those that are born of the spirit are spirit. So what does he mean there? Well, he's not talking about physical bodies because I can be born of the Spirit and have a physical body. saying of the flesh, meaning you're of the sinful, the sinful world order. You, you have this sinful human nature of the flesh is flesh, but then it's devoid of the Spirit, but then if you're born of the Spirit, you, you have the, the new covenant Spirit of God. So, I think it's in this negative sense that he's talking about here. He's talking about these desires that arise from our sinful condition. These cravings, John says, are in the world. Are they, are they the World cravings or my cravings? Like what? What's going on? They're in the world. How can that be? Since they, these desires arise from us, they're from our flesh, but John's saying, okay, yeah, they're from your flesh, but they're in the world. What does he mean? Well, I would put them together like this. Evil desires arise from the flesh, and they're promoted and celebrated by the world, by other people who are dominated by their fleshly desires. So it's in that sense that fleshly desires are in the world, John would say. Desires to have our way at the expense of others. Desires to be satisfied here and now, right now, in my way. Desires to be approved by other people. Desires for glory, for my significance. Desires for complete autonomy. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. These are the the desires of fallen human nature. And these raging and idolatrous desires don't merely stay at the desire level, do they? What happens? comes out, right? They lead to actions, or as Paul calls them, works of the flesh, in Galatians 5. So, in the beginning, he calls them desires of the flesh, and they're at war with desires of the Spirit, in Galatians 5, and then they lead to the works of the flesh. They come out, and things like sexual immorality, so in our context, sexual like sexual immorality, lust, impurity, pornography. Lead, they lead to things like these lusts of the flesh, lead to things like envy, jealousy, rivalry, Paul would say in Galatians 5. Comparing yourself to other people, that's what that means, wanting what they have. He says it leads to things like strife and fits of anger. So think of arguing, blowing up, irritability. Paul says it leads to things like dissensions and divisions. Think gossip, tearing people down, mocking, making certain people suspicious of other people. So here, John is saying that the world is full of this stuff because it's full of people who are dominated by these fleshly desires, by a love of self, if you want to boil it all down. A love of self. So he, he says, okay, the world in, there are things in the world, and one of the things in the world is these, are these fleshly desires. Another thing that's in the world Another thing the world's full of are what he says are desires of the eyes. What does he mean by that? Oh. Desires of the eyes. Well, we might call this the, the covetous cravings that come from what we see. I'm right? a mouthful. But the covetous craze, <laughs> cravings, that's hard to say, that come from what we see the desires of the eyes, or the lusts of the eyes. The world is constantly promoting things to us that will satisfy us, or or so they say. Things that we don't have, or that don't belong to us. We see it, we think we need it, or deserve it. We want it, and so we sin to get it. Alright? So that's the idea of these covetous cravings that come from what we see. The world's constantly promoting things to us. They can be outrightly sinful things. They can be good things that the Lord's not given you yet. But our sinful hearts, these covetous cravings, our eyes see them, and we want them, and we take them. We transgress to get it, and that's the idea. It's not some lawful thing, like I, I want to be married, and so I go take a wife. Like, that's not the idea. That would be a, that would be a totally appropriate thing to do, but this is talking about the, the transgression, the, the, the stepping over the line, these covetous cravings. Netflix shows const, Netflix shows okay constantly promote to us a version of the good life that is antithetical to Scripture. I'm not saying you should never watch a Netflix show. But we have to recognize that that these kinds of things promote a version of the good life that's antithetical to Scripture. Instagram influencers show us that we can't live without certain things, right? You have to have this. Pinterest tells us what our homes need to look like if we want to be satisfied. Maybe in my case, a raised garden bed. But even going beyond this, the blind world says this life is all there is. What you see with your eyes is what you get. So crave it. Pursue it as your aim in life. Because you will find ultimate satisfaction there. This life is all that there is. What you can see is all you can get. So go for it. And this Pressure adds fuel to the already burning fire in humanity's covetous heart. Does that make sense? So the world is just adding fuel to the fire that's already burning in humanity's heart to covet, to want. And John says then that the world is full of the lust of the eyes. Full of the lust of the eyes. And finally he says... This world is full of the pride of life. The pride of life. And I think we can call this one the arrogance that arises from a reliance upon possessions. Okay? The arrogance pride that arises from a reliance upon possessions. Now, you might be like, "Where where'd you get that from?" Um, pride of life there. That seems to be a stretch. Well, let me break it down. Okay, the word pride is used, it's a very, very rare word, and it's, it's used in context of unbridled arrogance. So, geek out in a little bit. It's used one time in James, and then it's used several times in Maccabees, um, of Roman emperors who uh, were boasting a lot about themselves. And then God brought them down um, very low. And so they were, they're used in these contexts where men, think of like Epiphanes and other, other of these men, thought themselves as untouchable, protected from disaster by their wealth, power, and their status. And here, John calls it the pride, the arrogance of life. Now this word life, bios in Greek, is also a rare word, and it can mean the resources that we need to live. Resources that we need to live. Now, if you think, okay, well, where are you getting that from? Well, John uses the same word, the same term, later in 1 John 3.17. So, if you want to look over there, he says there, 1 John 3.17, if anyone has, the ESV translates this, the world's goods, and it's literally, if anyone has the world's life, the world's bios, And sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? What's he talking about there? What's he saying? What is the world's bios? What's the world's life? Well, the world's life means the world's resources, or the world's goods, as the ESV says. Resources that ought to be shared with the brother if he's in need. And John's saying, if you close your heart against this brother... You can't have the love of God in you. You can't have the love of the Father in you. If you see this guy, he's languishing in your congregation. You have the means to meet those needs, and you don't. So here, it's clearly a reference to material possessions or goods, right here in the same letter. And it's the the same word, the life. So here, back in our text, the pride of life is the arrogance, then, that comes from a reliance upon our possessions, So what this means then is instead of trusting God, the world trumpets trust in money. And when we do trust it, then we derive a sense of arrogant security from that, those resources. And that's where it becomes problematic. Not that the resources themselves are problematic, because there again, we should have resources to give to people who are in need, right? Right? It's, that, it's the arrogance that comes from them. And how, does, how do we get arrogant about our possessions well, when we rely on them in place of God? We cherish and hoard our possessions. We live our lives in pursuit of possessions exclusively because of what they promise. Money, wealth, promises ultimate security and stability. It promises ultimate access to pleasure. So, John says here that this pride of life is in the world, and the world holds it out to us as a worthy pursuit. So, John says, don't love the world, nor the things in the world. These things. But what does he mean, don't love the world? It's our next question. What does John mean when he tells us not to love the world? What's he getting at? Well, John is saying, don't become enticed by the allure of a world that's set in opposition to God. Don't become enticed by the allure of a world that is set in opposition to God. Don't cozy up with it. Don't become intimate friends with a world that's hostile to God and His ways. Don't devote yourself to the world. And specifically, don't cherish a world that celebrates your fleshly impulses. Is it tempting? Yes. This world will make you feel great. It will minimize your sin. It will help you blame your sin on other people, other circumstances outside of yourself. It will tell you that you are great. It will tell you that you should think highly of yourself. It will flatter you. It will tell you to take offense at those who dare challenge you. It will tell you there's nothing that you can't do and not to let anyone or anything confine your self-expression or your sexual identity or anything else. It will encourage you to gratify yourself, even telling you that you deserve the gratification. It will accept you as you are with one catch, as long as you're not actively following Christ. It will subtly tell you that this life, what you see, is all there is. It will whisper that you really can trust in wealth. It will point to examples all around you. Now John knows this is tempting. And it's especially tempting for a suffering and a marginalized church. It's tempting to throw in the towel. To make matters worse, the false teachers were running around claiming to be Christians and they had all the perks of this world. They had the best of both. They're following Jesus. But you can still love the world too. But John knows you can't have it both ways. That's why it's a battle of loyalties. He says, don't let your heart be enamored with and influenced by these things. Don't let these lies shift your loyalties from God to the world. But with these temptations so strong, how will we overcome them? How will we overcome the world? Well, later in the letter... John encourages us yet again. We're not going to spend much time here, but just listen to what he says over in chapter 5, verse 4. Let's be encouraging. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And, he says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So, what's he saying? The human sign of our victory, in real time, right here, playing out on the world stage, the sign of our victory is our faith, he says. It's our reliance on the word of God in embracing of the Son of God, he'll, he'll go on to say. Now how is that the sign of our victory? Well because faith reveals something else. Faith did not come from you. You say I exercised it. Yes you did. But why did you exercise faith? Because you are born. Of God, You have been born of God. Everyone, he says, who has been born of God overcomes the world. Your new birth, the reality of your new birth, begets faith. Faith reveals something else. It reveals that we've been born of God, John says. And those who are born of God are promised to overcome the world. So, listen to this. This means, then, that our victory comes through faith. And if you have believed in Jesus, no matter how weak or small that faith, that didn't come from you. God granted that faith, which means you can trust Him that you will overcome the world because you've been born of God. Our victory comes through faith, so that means then, by implication, that we must seek to strengthen our faith by knowing God's truth if we're going to overcome the world. You follow me? If face the victory, we've exercised it, it's weak, if we're going to continue in that, then God's going to continue to strengthen us and strengthen particularly our faith. And that happens, we know, as, we, as our faith sinks its teeth down into the truth. If we overcome by believing God, if, we over, if that's the way we overcome, by believing God and yielding to Him, that means we must know how to discern the lies. And so that's exactly where John goes next. He lays out some significant truths we have to know and we have to believe if we're going to overcome the enticements of the world. We're going to call these the motivations. Motivations to obey the command. The truths that we need. The vision that we need to see with the eyes of faith. When we see this there's several of them in the passage. So we're going to see this initial motivation halfway through verse 15. He says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life, all of that is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So we can say it like this. The love of the world is incompatible with the love of the Father. That's the first thing you, ha- first thing you have to see. You have to know. It's incompatible. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Like these false teachers are saying. The love of the world is incompatible with the love of the Father. It's a a clash of loyalties. The person who is utterly devoted to this evil world, he can't at the same time be utterly devoted to God. In fact, he does not love God no matter what he claims. These things of, of the world are from the world, Right? They're not from the Father. So that means they're set against God, that God's not pleased with these things. They're not from Him. So anybody that's, that's latched on to them are not latched on to God. They're set against God. And John's statement here was aimed at those false teachers, not the church, but the false teachers, who professed love for God and yet were completely enamored with the world. They gave vent to their sinful desires while at the same time denying their guilt. And John says these people don't love God. They've never experienced God's radical and purifying love to them. That's where our love for God comes from, remember? They've never experienced God's love for them. And so as a result, they don't love him in return. They're not exclusively devoted to him. They have a different father, to allude to Jesus' own words to the Pharisees, a different father, and that father is Satan. Now you're thinking, well, how does that motivate me? Right? (laughs) Like, what? That's that supposed to motivate me. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to claim Christ and then live like an unbeliever. Is that fair? This warning motivates me to confess any love of the world that I see and to avail myself of God's mercy. To get after renewing my mind. It puts zeal in my heart to pursue the love of God. Both his love for me and my love for him in its expression. And it, it, I, it helps me because I see this a text like this just paints it in black and white. There is no neutral option. There's no middle ground. There's no room for apathy. Because if I'm apathetic, I'm automatically drifting to the love of the world. And I may be consumed by it. So there's no neutrality. If I'm apathetic, I'm drifting toward the love of the world, and it is deadly. All right? So... Love of the world is incompatible with the love of the Father, so we need to deal with it. And the way we deal with it is we run to God for his mercy and experience his love and learn to yield to him our will in return. So the next motivation is in verse 17. And there John lets us in on a little secret. He says the evil world is on its way out. All right, it's passing away. Verse 17. And the world is passing away, along with this desires. So this evil world is on its way out. And John says we've got to realize this. The evil world and the desires that contaminate it are passing away. This world system is on top now, isn't it? The antichrists, they tread over the saints. We may not experience that much here, but there are more martyrs today than have ever existed in church history. False prophets, antichrists control world economies, world cultures, media, the arts. And I'm not some, like, Republican guy out here. I mean, I am Republican, I guess. But I'm not that's not my point. They are in control. but something has happened in history. Something's happened that's cracked the foundation of this kingdom of Satan and it's the resurrection of the Son of God. He has ascended far above this world and above this world's power. He is redeeming people from Satan's domain effortlessly and he's transferring them into his eternal kingdom. He even protects his people spiritually so much so that John says in verse 18 of chapter 5 that the evil one cannot touch us. He cannot touch us, because we are in Christ's hands. The kingdom of this world is impermanent and already decaying, John says, and we have to know that and believe that if we're going to battle the enticements of the world. Why? Because the evil world looks permanent. One evil president term is over. Another evil president gets in his place. Communism dies out in one century and it arises in the next. The wicked continue to prosper while the righteous suffer. But when we can see with the eyes of faith, we see its decay. We see it rotting from the inside out. We see its impermanence in that it cannot ultimately deliver on what it promises. So, John says, don't waste your time on something that's passing away. Have you ever worked a long time on something that just gets thrown away? Spend 15 hours putting together a detailed proposal for a group project. It gets scrapped. If you would have known that That proposal was destined for the trash from the start? How would that have affected you? You wouldn't have involved yourself in that, would you? You'd have saved the 15 hours. You'd have done something else with that time. Well, you can know that this evil world is passing away. It's destined for the trash. For judgment. It's decaying now, and no sinful act will be rewarded. It will be punished. No sin, nothing done in unbelief, none of that will pass through to the new heavens and the new earth. Not only will it not endure, but if we're involved in sin, we are actively promoting Satan's decaying kingdom. You're sanding and you're painting the bars of the prison that hold people captive. Every lustful interaction with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, every click of porn, all the time spent comparing yourself to others on social media, all the hours of anxiously watching YouTube to try to escape the responsibilities of life, you are working on things that will not endure and that will result in shame and deep regret for how you've lived the one life God gave you, the one life he gave you to redeem. So, the more clearly you see by faith that this world is passing away, the more motivated you will be to withstand its deceitful enticements because they don't last. But John doesn't just say that the world's passing away, he does say that, as helpful as that is. The final motivation is the positive side of that last one. Okay? John reminds us that obedient children. Live forever. Obedient children live forever. Look in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. And I've phrased this as obedient children live forever. Now I know by the way I said that, you're probably wondering, like, wow, that sounds like works. Like, what are you what are you talking about? Are you saying that God allows people to live forever because they're obedient? Well, no and yes. Okay? So let me clarify. Here's what I mean. No. They're not earning their forever life. No, in the sense that we do the will of God because we've been freely born again. Does that make sense? So Because we've been born of God, freely by the gospel, now we obey. We've already seen that. And that's totally apart from works. We're not born again by our works. We're born again by a sovereign work of God. We've been given a new nature, and so then we've we've become God's children through Christ by faith. Our hearts have changed, and now we want to obey, and we begin to obey very imperfectly. Right? It's over progression over time. But we do obey now, and we obey by faith. When before, we did not obey by faith. So maybe if we were good, it was not by faith, right? It was, it was of our own goodness. It was trying to pull ourselves up. But now we obey by faith, because we trust the Lord. What John is saying is that the one who does the will of God, who is obedient, that one reveals they've been born from God, And thus, they are the ones that will live forever. Make sense? The one who obeys, the one who's obedient, the obedient child, in this case, reveals that they've been born from God, and thus, they are the ones that will live forever. So, what this implies, then, is that no obedience is ever, ever wasted. You see that? No fulfilling of God's revealed will is ever a waste of time or will ever go unrewarded by God. The world's desires are passing away, but God's are not. God's are eternal. His desires are eternal. They're lasting and truly significant. So that means as we adopt His desires that every act of faith, every mortification of sin, every time we strive to mimic Christ, every time we love someone, every time you go to work in faith, Every time you complete that assignment to please Christ, all of that is going to pass over into the new earth. Like, it will last. All of it will be rewarded by Christ. And you will never, ever regret the effort spent in obeying the Lord, even if it costs you your life. You're never going to regret it when you receive the reward in the new earth. Even our leisure and our rest can be done in faith. It can be done in obedience to the Lord. A life of faith then reveals that we will live forever. It reveals that it will end, the life will end in resurrection. That's what this idea, the word "the, the one who does the will of God abides forever, it means that it literally remains unto eternity. This is, a, is a literal translation of that. It remains forever. It's talking about the resurrection. All the hardships and all the hostility that you face from Satan and the world, that will be eclipsed in a moment in everlasting joy and incalculable blessings. And it'll last forever. And if we know that, that helps us to withstand the world. In fact, that's the only way we can withstand the world and its temptations by knowing these realities. It makes the enticements of Satan and the world sound hollow when we think about the world that's to come. So as we finish up tonight, I, I want to help you see how all this comes together in the moment of enticement. Okay? Right now, I want you to, to just take a step back. Okay, let that simmer for a second. It's a lot. But just now take a step back, think about your life, and think about that moment, particular moment, When the world's allure is powerful for you. So if you were convicted, as we were walking, walking through some of that stuff, think about that moment. When is it enticing, particularly alluring to you? When you're really tempted to love the world. Okay? You got the moment in your head? This if you do, like this if you don't. Okay, if you have the moment, in that moment, when your fleshly desires are being tapped, what do you do? Well, you have to realize in that moment that you are in danger of being deceived. Is that fair? You've got to stand outside yourself, so to speak, and you have to call to mind one of these truths, or all of these truths, these motivations. The Bible's full of them, not just this passage, but one of these motivations, or all of them. And it would sound something like this. Whoa, wait a minute. Right? This is what unbelievers do, not people who have been born of God like me. Number one. Hang on. This is what people who know Satan do, not people who know God, who've been born of God like I am. And beyond that, if I were to give into this right now, I would be actively advancing Satan's kingdom and promoting this evil world that's passing away. That's what I'm thinking. This is a giant waste of time, eternally speaking. It's going to result in my shame. And on the flip side, if I obey right now, if I obey here in this moment, I'm actively promoting Christ's kingdom. And I know that I won't ever regret it in the resurrection. How many of us think like that in temptation? (laughs) How many of us sin, right? I mean, that's why because these things are not coursing through us. We don't know this stuff. It's not on our minds in the in the moment of temptation. So as it's coursing through your mind, then you pray. Lord, help me. Help me obey you by faith. Help me to act on what I know. Everything in me wants to sin. Everything in me wants to give into the world right now. Help me to yield my will, my desires to your desires, to your will. Not my will be done, but yours. And then, you obey. You go against every inclination of your heart in that moment, in the power of Christ, and you obey. There's no magic to it, other than the power of Christ operating through the truth of his word. You get up, after that, you live your life, As though the things you just said are true because they are. Don't get wrapped up over how you feel. And don't get discouraged that you did not want to obey in the moment of temptation. You think your old man, the old Adam, is just going to roll over without a fight? No, he will not roll over. Sometimes we think death to self should be easy. But it is not. It is is crucifixion of your sinful self. And he gave us the metaphor to help us see that it's not easy. But that's the fight, and we and it's called the fight of faith. The good fight, is what Paul calls it. It's what it, it it looks like. This is what it looks like to practically live by faith. We have to renew our minds with the truth. Have these motivations coursing through in the moment of temptation, pray to God help us, and then act on what we know. And that's how we make progress. And that's the only way we make progress. It won't be easy. It will not be easy. So if you think it's going to be easy, you're setting yourself up for failure. But God is with us. He's with He's with His children to help them, to give them power, and that's how we advance in joy and peace and life, we advance paradoxically through death. So that's John's first command to us from his letter. And we don't want to forget everything that's come before. You've already overcome the evil one in Christ, he said. You've already been born of God. You will overcome the world by faith. Therefore, don't love God. The world. Don't give in to its deceptive enticements, however true they seem right now in this moment. You'll be forever glad that you didn't. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith in the moment of temptation to believe you and to know that the battle is won in the little moments of yielding our wills to you by faith. If this seems daunting, I pray that you would just overwhelm um, these folks with a sense of your presence, your power, that you would bring them back to the truth that when they believe the gospel, it's because you were drawing them and you open their eyes to see. You're committed to them, more committed than they are to their sanctification. And I pray that you would just give us clarity and that um, you would just disentangle us from our affections when we we latch onto the world and that you would help us to to be truly loyal to you by faith and to walk in that obedience moment by moment, day by day. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.